For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. I entitled this, The Good News About Salvation. We're going to be looking at Romans 1, verse 1 through 17. And I want to do a little bit of introduction to the book of Romans, since we're going to be working our way through the entire book. First of all, the author is very clear. We read in Romans 1, 1, that Paul claims he wrote this book, a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. And a little bit about the apostle Paul, Jesus met him after he was raised from the dead and struck him blind on the road to Damascus as Paul was heading to go and persecute more Christians. And this had such a powerful effect on him that he actually became one of the greatest Christian leaders of the early church. And so he wrote many of the letters that we have in the New Testament. Secondly, the audience were the Romans. And it's a little bit interesting to look at the backstory of Romans because the church at Rome really has no connection to any of the apostles, any of the original 12 disciples. And most commentators, most scholars of the Bible actually believe that what happened was when pilgrims came to Jerusalem after, or, uh, during Jesus' death, because it was Passover, that they stayed there for Pentecost, which was 50 days later, and that's when many of them came to Christ. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. And apparently many of these pilgrims who came from all over the Roman Empire decided that they were going to stay for several months and to learn more about Christianity. And what most scholars believe is that these pilgrims, after they left Jerusalem and went back to their home cities, started to plant churches in their city. So many scholars actually believe that the church in Rome originated from these early pilgrims who then came back to Rome months later, and they were the ones who actually began that church. Now, it's interesting, Suetonius, the, um, one of the uh, Roman historians, claims that Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because they were constantly rioting at the instigation of this individual named Crestus. And most scholars believe that this is a misspelling of Jesus' name or his title, Christus. And it's interesting because what happened was there was this, this um, infighting that was going on between the Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah and those who rejected him. And this rioting that was taking place apparently caused Emperor Claudius to expel them from Rome. And interestingly, an indiv- a couple named Priscilla and Aquila show up in the book of Acts in Corinth, and they were actually expelled from Rome. And so what happened was, when the Jewish Christians were expelled from Rome, the Gentile or non-Jewish believers there sort of took over, and that, that church expanded. And later on, they came back, the Jewish people, and what happened was there was tension between these two parties, as we'll see in the book of, Rome, uh, book of Romans. 
The origin of this book, most people believe that Paul wrote this book sometime at the end of the third missionary journey in Acts chapter 20. He spent about three months in Corinth, and so most people believe that he actually wrote this book while he was in Corinth and sent it to Rome. The date, if you accept that Jesus died in AD 33 and a tighter chronology of the book of Acts, then you probably would arrive at maybe a date of AD 55 for the writing of this letter. So enough of that. Let's get into the meat of this passage. Paul begins in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, this word gospel in Greek is the word euangelion, which means the good news. Now, that might be a surprise to some of us here who might be visiting guests who often associate Christianity or the contents of the Bible as the furthest thing from the good news. I know growing up as, you know, a church goer, whenever I thought of Christianity or whenever I thought about the Bible, I thought about a bunch of rules, things that I needed to do to please God. There was a belief that if I worked hard enough, I could actually earn my way to God. And that doesn't sound like good news at all. And yet, what God says is that the Bible contains incredibly good news. That it's not about earning your way to God by doing good things and avoiding bad things. It's not about trying to make sure that you balance the books between your good works and your bad works and hope that maybe God accepts you for salvation, but that there's really nothing that we can do to erase the status of guilt that we have, that instead God sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to pay for the moral debt that we deserve to pay ourselves. And the good news is this, that God doesn't expect for us to pay for that ourselves, that he wants to offer that as a free gift of salvation. So all it takes is for us to place our faith in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and he says that we can have not only eternal life, but a relationship with him that lasts forever. And so that's truly good news. He says in verse 2, the gospel that he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's interesting that he notes right from the very beginning that God knew that we would have questions, that we would want evidence, that there might be some skepticism as to whether or not he speaks for God or whether or not the Bible actually speaks for God. After all, when you look out into the world, there are so many competing voices out there saying, I'm speaking for God. This is the truth. And yet, it's very confusing to sort through all of that to figure out who actually speaks for God. Well, God provided evidence for us. And I remember hearing this for the very first time and being totally blown away that God would provide real evidence. Because, you know, whenever I thought about Christianity, I thought about a leap of faith. That it was all about just blindly believing in something, even though you knew that it probably wasn't true. And yet, what God says is that faith, in the biblical sense, is evidence-based. 
that God gives us a solid foundation for our faith, that it's actually trust in what he says. He says in verse 3 that in regard to his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. When you look at the Old Testament, one of the things that God does is he leaves these artifacts in the Old Testament, these predictive prophecies talking about who his chosen one, the Messiah, would be. And he did that to pre-authenticate the coming of his son, Jesus. You know, God began his work, you know, 2,000 years before Jesus even arrived on the scene with Abraham. He began a people through him. Then he narrowed it down to Isaac, one of Abraham's sons. Then he narrowed it down even further to Jacob, who then had 12 children. And from one of those 12 descendants of Jacob, we're told that God marked out that family and said, my chosen one will come from that family, Judah. We read in Isaiah 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne from that time on forever. Okay, I want to sort of train your eyes to see certain things here that are important. First of all, Isaiah, who wrote this, about six or seven hundred years before Jesus even arrives on the scene, says that the Messiah or the chosen one of God will actually be a human being. After all, he says, for to us a child is born. Now that's significant because God wanted to make sure that the Savior of the human race would be able to identify with us as human beings. As the author of Hebrews said, The Messiah needed to become like us in every single way so that he might become a sympathetic and faithful high priest. So in order to be an adequate substitute for us, he needed to become like us so that he could substitute his life on our behalf. Secondly, this passage seems to suggest that God's chosen one would actually be a divine being. He calls this individual mighty God. Now, this has to have confused Jewish scholars for many, many centuries. To think that an individual would come and actually be called mighty God was incomprehensible. God, in their minds, is transcendent. He's other. He's distant. And to think that he would come in human flesh as a man, must have been very difficult for them to grasp. And yet, it was important that he was also a divine being. Because how could one individual die for the sake of many individuals? Even if that individual was perfect, they were only qualified to die on behalf of another person. And yet, if this this being was more than just a human being, if this being was actually divine, then he would have the capacity to die for the entire human race. And so Jesus' divinity is quite important. 
But more importantly, Isaiah predicted that this would happen hundreds of years before Jesus even arrives on the scene in history. Additionally, Isaiah gives this chosen one these titles, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And if you look at the book of Isaiah, Isaiah equates these titles with God himself, further strengthening this idea that the chosen one of God would actually be a divine being. Also, the Old Testament predicted the Messiah would be born in the same town as King David himself. Look at Matthew 2, verse 1 through 6. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is where the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this comes from Micah 5, 2. Now, how could could Jesus determine where he would be born? More importantly, if Jesus' Jewish opponents wanted to discredit him saying that he was the Messiah, it would have been very easy for them to go and disprove that he came from the town of Bethlehem. Verse 4, we read, The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures and through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So it says that this chosen one of God would not only die, but be raised from the dead. So the Old Testament, in addition to predicting where the Messiah would be born, not only predicting who the Messiah would be, also predicted that the Messiah would suffer and die, that that would be part of his career. In Matthew 27, verse 46 We read at the conclusion of Jesus' life that about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, skeptical scholars have looked at this and have thought, Jesus must have been losing his faith. He was having a crisis of faith as he was on the cross. And yet, what Jesus was doing here was he was quoting the first line of a famous psalm. Psalm 22. And a little bit of background on this psalm. David wrote this psalm about a thousand years before Jesus uh, appeared. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Now, unlike our day, in Jesus' time, They didn't have chapter and verse divisions. Somebody added that later on in the 1500s AD. Back then, when you wanted to signal a reference, what you would do is you would quote the first few lines of that psalm or of that passage. Now, Jewish boys, even from a very young age, were taught the Torah and the Old Testament 
to such an extent that they would memorize large portions of the Old Testament. So in hearing the first lines of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most of the Jewish audience standing there at the cross would have known exactly what Jesus was doing. He was quoting this Old Testament passage, indicating that what they were watching, what they were seeing and observing, that that was happening, in the, it was being fulfilled in their very presence. You know, you think about how even today you hear a song, a popular song, and it just, you can, it's so familiar that you can start singing the rest of the, the, the lyrics. You know, take, for example, you're sitting in, in your car, you know, and the radio's on, and um, you hear this line, just a small town girl. living in a lonely world. She took the midnight train going anywhere. Okay? It's obvious to all of us who this is, right? This is Journey, and there are songs, Don't Stop Believing. Well, Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8 says, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. And if you're familiar with the gospel accounts of Jesus' death, you'll know that there were bystanders who were walking by, who were hurling insults at Jesus. He saved others, but he can't even save himself. The irony in this is that God could not rescue his son if he actually planned to rescue the entire human race. In verse 12, David says, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Now, of course, David is not talking about literal bulls with big horns and bad attitudes. He's talking about a reference here to Bashan, which is actually an area in Galilee, northern part of Israel, which gets an extraordinary amount of rainfall because Israel is a semi-arid place. And so Bashan was actually known for their bulls because they would have cows that would forage on lush grass. And so these were big, powerful individuals. And later in verse 16, David refers to these individuals as a band of evildoers, dogs, which was sort of a euphemism or a pejorative term for Gentiles. So these individuals that encircled the person who David was talking about were these powerful Gentile enemies, which perfectly fits the picture of the cross where the Roman executioners were standing there, hurling abuses at Jesus, putting him to death. We read in verse 14 and 15, I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned like wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. The individual says that my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Now, if you know anything about the process of crucifixion, 
the Romans would actually flog the victim before actually pinning them to the cross. And this was so savage, so brutal, that when they would flog the victim, large ribbons of flesh would come out of their back, leading to tremendous blood loss. Many victims actually died before they even reached the cross. And so Jesus, due to his blood loss, was dehydrated while he was hanging there. Indeed, we're told in the Gospels that he cried out, I'm thirsty. Also, it says that this victim's heart has turned like wax. It's melted within me. You know, in in 1986, the American Medical Association did a study on crucifixion and found that most crucifixion victims actually died of massive heart failure. The technical term is hypovolemic shock. And so this fits exactly with what happened with Jesus where we're told that the Roman guard actually pierced him in his side and what looked like water and blood flowed out of his side, indicating that he had died due to massive heart failure. Also it says that all of my bones are out of joint. This perfectly describes what we see at the cross, where Jesus is outstretched. What the Roman guards would do is they would pin these railroad spikes into both wrists and into both feet. And the victim would have to pull up on these spikes in order to get a breath. And ultimately would have to alternate between pulling up and pushing up on their feet. In verse 16, we're told, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. What's interesting is that David is describing a form of torture and execution that didn't even exist in his time. He was writing this in 1000 BC. And crucifixion wasn't even invented until about 500 BC under the Persians. And even that type of crucifixion was very primitive compared to the way the Romans would crucify their victims. Now some might say, well, maybe Jesus sought to fulfill this psalm. And yet, you're left wondering what would be the motive. Jesus martyred himself with the thought that maybe the disciples would put together the pieces and see that he was indeed the Messiah. Not likely. Even if Jesus decided he was going to martyr himself, the Jewish form of execution was actually stoning, not crucifixion. The Jews under occupation, under the Romans, were unable to actually execute anyone, let alone crucify people. And so Jesus had no choice in whether or not he was crucified or whether or not he was stoned. Others would say, well, maybe... David was describing his own death. Again, this doesn't fit the evidence. In 1 Kings chapter 2, we read about David's death and he dies a peaceful death in his own bed. David must be describing someone else. Verse 17 and 18 says, All of my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Again, this fits the picture that we see in the cross where the Roman guards saw that 
Jesus had this wonderful robe that Pilate gave to him. And that they used this to mock Jesus as the king of the Jews. But they saw that this thing was so valuable that they didn't want to tear it into pieces. And so they cast lots. They gambled to see who would get the whole article. Not only this, the Old Testament also foretold the Messiah's resurrection. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, 7, and 9, Isaiah says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't even open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and and prolong his days. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. You know, as you're reading through this description of Isaiah 53, you see this gruesome death that this suffering servant undergoes. And then out of nowhere, Isaiah says that this person's life was prolonged. And again, this fits the picture that we see in the Gospels. That Jesus not only died, but that God raised him from the dead. So it raises this question. When we look at just these small tidbits of of evidence for Christianity. Why would God include all of these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah? Why would he do that? Well, Isaiah 42, verse 8 and 9 gives us an answer. It tells us about God's intent in giving us these Old Testament prophecies. God declares, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they spring forth. I proclaim them to you. You know, what God was doing was, he was communicating to future generations who he knew would be skeptical. People like me and you. People who need a little bit more than just Blind faith, people who need evidence for belief. You know, when you look out there and you see all of the different competing claims out there, it's so confusing. And yet God says, look, I want you to know that I am God. That I have pre-authenticated myself through the Old Testament. Because I knew you would have questions. He says in verse 5 through 7, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call on all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you are also among these Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I really like this phrase here. Grace and peace to you. You know, this word grace, you should familiarize yourself with it because we're going to be hearing a lot about it as we study through the book of Romans. This word grace just simply means the unmerited gift of God. That God gives us a free gift of salvation 
through His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, we have a problem with God. We owe Him a tremendous moral debt. And instead of making us pay for it, He decided to forgive us for it. Now, for some of us, it's so familiar, this, this term grace, that it's sort of lost its meaning. You know, imagine if you borrowed somebody's property and you accidentally damaged it. That person has a decision to make. They can either say, you know what, I'm going to absorb the cost of that damage onto myself or I'm going to make you pay for it. It's an either-or thing. Grace indicates that God absorbed the cost of our moral debt onto himself through Jesus Christ instead of making us pay for it like he should. I had a great illustration of this several weeks ago when I was actually preparing for this teaching. My son, my youngest son, runs into my office, which is adjacent to their bedroom, and says, Daddy, Julius, my older son, he broke my hockey net. He broke my toy. And of course, you know, Julius comes seconds later justifying himself. It was an accident, I promise. I didn't mean to break it. And I thought to myself, this could be a learning moment. You know, as a parent, you have those moments. You're like, oh, this is going to be a good one, right? And so 30 minutes later, we sat at dinner and we convened a family discussion, family meeting. And I thought to myself, this is a great opportunity for, to show what grace means. So I look over at Julius and I say, you know, the problem with you breaking Ren's hockey net is that you have been reckless over the last few months. You've been breaking all types of stuff. And you need to understand that there are consequences for just breaking things, that you need to, that, that somebody needs to pay for this. Now, as it turns out, you've got about $50 in your little savings jar. This hockey net's going to cost $15. So I turn to Ren, my youngest son. I say, Ren, you have two options. You can either make your brother pay for the hockey net that he broke, or you can forgive him, give him grace. You could tell that the, the cogs were whirling in his brain. And he looks at me with a, with a stone cold look in his face and he says, he's going to pay. So I glance over at my wife, you know, her eyes are as big as half dollars, thinking, wow, this backfired. So I quickly pray to the Lord, Lord, please uh, let Wren give Julius grace here. So I turn back to Wren, I say, Wren, God loves us and uh, he's provided us grace. He's overlooked all the wrong things that we've done and has decided to forgive us anyway. Now, you can do that with Julius. And you know what he said to me? He's going to have to pay. 
So we're working on the whole grace thing, but I think he's got the justice thing down pretty well. I think he understands that. Luckily, you know, God doesn't make us pay. He gives us mercy. And it was within his right to make us pay. But instead, he decided to cover it and absorb the cost in his own son, Jesus Christ. The other interesting thing about this phrase is notice the order. Grace and peace. You see, grace always precedes peace. Now, many of you are sitting here and you feel this weight of anxiety. You know, some of you feel like you're living your lives and you're accomplishing lots of things, but even though you have pretty much everything you could possibly want, there's something inside of you telling you there's something missing. Even at the heights of achievement, there's this low-grade sense that this isn't good enough. And you know what God says is what's missing in your life is not more money, it's not more stuff, it's not more comfort, it's not more achievement. What's missing is me. God created you to be in a relationship with him. And we were born in an unnatural state, separated from God. And God said he made it possible for us to be reunited with him in reconciliation through Jesus Christ to give us the peace that transcends all understanding. Jesus says in John 14, verse 27, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I don't give it as the world gives it. That's something that our culture longs for, peace, inner peace. And Jesus says, I can give that to you. But it's not going to be the kind of peace that the world expects. This is the kind of peace that can endure the worst kind of trial. This is the kind of peace that is uninterrupted by circumstances. This is the peace that comes from making peace with the God of the universe. He says in verse 8 through 10, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith and how it's being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit and preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray now at last by God's will, the way may be open to me to come to you. I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so even until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles or non-Jewish people. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first of all to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Notice he says, 
All it takes is believing. It's not about doing a bunch of things. It's not about engaging in rituals. God says simply believe. Trust. I love the way that Isaiah depicts it in Isaiah 45 verse 22. He says, look unto me all the nations for salvation. It's so simple that we just direct our eyes to God and trust. And he says, that's good enough. And then he says that it's first of all to the Jew, then to the Gentile. God promised to Israel that he would be their people, his people. And he's a God who fulfills his promises. Finally, in verse 17, he says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. I really love how the New Living Translation renders this. This good news tells us how God made us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. In other words, we gain a relationship with God by faith, and we continue that relationship with him through faith. It's faith from first to last. And finally, he says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul quotes this Old Testament passage, Habakkuk 2 verse 4. And what's interesting is that Catholic priests in 1513 read this verse. And despite believing all of his life that the way to have a relationship with God was by doing good works and earning your salvation. He read this and concluded that it was by faith alone that one comes to receive that grace, that salvation. And that man was Martin Luther. Shortly after that, he hung the 95 theses on the, on the Wittenberg uh, church and began and sparked the Protestant Reformation. Sometime later, a missionary um, who reluctantly was invited to come to this meeting at Aldersgate in London heard Martin Luther's introduction that he wrote to Romans and was struck by Romans 1 verse 17. And we're told that this missionary said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did not trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That man was John Wesley, who started the Methodist movement. So this verse has impacted billions of people in their faith. Let's draw a few conclusions. I think the first thing is that Paul never visited Rome, so he decides that he's going to cover Christianity from A to Z. Let's just start from the beginning. And as you get toward the end of Romans, I mean, the, the, the complicated issues that he brings up are amazing. Next week, we're going to read how Paul starts with the existence of God. And if you're investigating Christianity, 
I'd encourage you to come. There's lots of evidence for belief in Christianity. And we're going to answer some of the fundamental questions that people have. Is Christianity compatible with science? What would it look like if God didn't exist? What would the world be like? And other questions that people have. And finally, why not devote a few hours of your life to thinking about these deeper questions? God, uh, we thank you for giving us incredible evidence. And uh, most importantly, we thank you for the good news of your salvation. That you've made it known to us and that you offer it to us freely. And we pray, Lord, for anyone who may sense that you are speaking to them. That you are providing them this evidence for belief in Christ. That they would take a step of faith and place their trust in you. Trust in what you've said. And we pray too for those of us who have experienced this grace. We pray that we can strive, that we can grasp on to this peace that you offer us through Jesus Christ. And I know that I've experienced that throughout my Christian life. And um, it's something that certainly the world doesn't offer. It's only something that you can give. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.